Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. I've always wanted to preach on the, uh, the line here about mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws, but I've never had the courage, so preaching on something else tonight. So here we go. This is what I want to talk about. I got three things, a different vision, a different response, and a different goal. Different vision, different response, and a different goal. These are the three things I want to talk about this evening. Drawing from that second reading, the letter to the Hebrews that, according to tradition, was from St. Paul. So here's the thing. I want us to hear that again because it's so rich and so good. So if you brought your Bible to Mass, flip it over to Hebrews chapter 12. But if you didn't bring your Bible to Mass, grab the hymnal that's in front of you, flip it to page 1151. And I want us just to hear it again. And it just, it's helpful if you can see it in front of you also. So Oh, they're all like, what, what are we doing? What are we, this is a Catholic Mass? Yes, okay. All right, here we go. This is what we have from the letter of the Hebrews from tonight. And just because sometimes you hear it once and it goes in one ear and out the other. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us rid ourselves of every burden and sin that clings to us and persevere in running the race that lies before us while keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the leader and perfecter of faith. For the sake of the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider how he endured such opposition from sinners in order that you may not grow weary and lose heart in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Okay. Letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12, so much packed into there. All right, so in this passage, what we have going on here, we got St. Paul, he's giving us an image, a vision of what is happening in heaven, okay, and how that is affecting things on earth. He's giving us major encouragement of how to deal with, how to look at, how to be rid of our sinfulness, those things that hinder us, that hold us back, our inclination to choose low and earthly things. And finally, he's giving us, or he's reframing, I should say, Jesus' willingness to suffer his passion in light of what he calls the joy set before him. These are the three things he's kind of unpacking here. So we need to enter into all three of those. That's what we're doing tonight. Let's start with this first one, a different vision of heaven. So Paul describes our present reality as one in which we are surrounded by what he calls this great cloud of witnesses. This great cloud of witnesses. As Catholics, we call that the communion of saints, right? We're surrounded by the communion of saints. All of the good and just and righteous souls, all the men and women, both the canonized and the uncanonized who've gone before us, including also all the angels, Right, the myriad of angels beyond counting, beyond number, who did not rebel against God and fell in line with Lucifer. No, there's so many more angels than human souls. This communion, this great cloud of witnesses is this incredible panoply of glory, this reflection of God's artistic majesty. So here's the first corrective. Here's the first thing that St. Paul is giving us in this reading, that heaven is not like way up there. 
Okay? Heaven's not way up there, like second star to the right, straight on till morning, never land kind of style. It's not way up there. It's not in a different galaxy, a different place far, far away. It is somehow here among us. Invisible, yes, invisible to our present earthly vision. But this great cloud of witnesses, these angels, these saints, they are among us, surrounding us. These saints in glory are not somewhere else, as Peter Kreeft has said, they're somehow else. They're not somewhere else, they're somehow else. And this is the, here's the question, what are they doing? What are they doing? Are they just like watching us? Well, not quite. Not quite. So if you dig into this image a little bit further that Paul gives in this analogy, he compares us to like athletes competing in the arena, running a race in the game of life, if you will. And the great cloud of witnesses are like the fans in the stands. That's the imagery he's using. It's a totally different imagery than we're used to. So here's a question, like, why do people make the effort of actually going to a sporting event? I'm talking about like, you know, the, I, I want to call them the Indians. Don't we all want to call them the Indians? Okay, like the, the Guardians. Okay, like going to the Guardians, going to the Browns, going to the Cavs. Like, why do you make, I mean, you got to find parking, you got to walk, you sit in a little seat, and you're like, I got a big couch at home. Why am I not just sitting on a couch where for free, you know? Why do people make the effort to go to these live sporting events? It's not just because I want to be uncomfortable for three hours and get a hot dog. It's because... Somehow being there, like your enthusiasm as a fan, there's something about that that affects the game. Like it affects the game. Like all the athletes during COVID, they all said how weird it was to be playing in these silent stadiums. Remember how they would have pictures of cardboard fans sitting in the seats? Like, what the heck? Right? So bizarre. So bizarre, right? You go to the game because somehow like your energy, your enthusiasm can affect their performance. I was at the Indians, Guardians, last week for their game when they were playing against the Diamondbacks, right? And, uh, you know, like they'll start flashing on the giant screen. They'll flash those big words like, make some noise, scream, right? So everyone's just like, ah, right? Like, why, I don't know, why do we, I, I feel, you know, like if you're at bat, I feel like I would need focus. But somehow, right, that's the, that energy, it, it fills them as athletes. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to crush this out of the park, right? And like they just perform better. Like, your screaming, your energy, your enthusiasm affects the game to inspire the players. Okay, this is what the saints are doing, according to St. Paul in his letter to the Hebrews. It's not as though that, like, once they die, they think, like, whew, like, thank God I'm not down there anymore. Like, that was hard. I got filleted alive and set on fire. Like, I'm glad I'm not there, you know? That's not what they're thinking. They don't just retire into the, the heavenly lounge and have, you know, heavenly gin and tonics or something. That's not what they do. Here's, here's an image that came to my mind as I was praying this week. They're like a, it's like a, like a four by 100, like a relay team, right? That each member of the team runs a lap of the race or runs a leg of the race. And they carry that baton and they hand that off to the next person. That baton is the faith Right? And generation to generation, it's being passed on. And each member of that team, once they finish their leg of the race, they don't just like, whew, I'm so glad I'm done. And they like go off to the locker room. No, they like they stay there to watch the rest of their team continue the race. And they're not just like, hmm, yeah, I see. he's doing a pretty good job over there. 
No, they're screaming their heads off for them, right? Like, I picture, maybe this is going to scandalize you. I picture St. Therese Lassoux, her face painted with like a big foam finger for me in heaven. And she's like, yeah, Patrick! That's what I picture. I picture, I picture Padre Pio, like, like his vocal cords are just like shattered like I get after preaching so many masses. He's like, you can do it. Or John Paul II, coraggio. Like I picture this. I, like Maximilian Colby, today would have been his feast day if it wasn't a Sunday. I picture him losing his mind for me, losing his mind for us. They, why? Because they want us to compete well. They want us to run well. They want us to be where they are, which is home. That's what heaven is. They want us to be home with them. So what do we got to do? And that's what St. Paul says next. He says we got to deal with our sinfulness. We got to treat it seriously, get serious about my sinfulness. But right here, this is where we need to be careful and not fall into this trap of like self-sufficiency and self-perfection because like hear, hear me very clearly on this. Like, absolutely, absolutely, yes, we should deal seriously with our sins. We should be intentional about trying to uproot sinful behavior from our lives. We should work on it, absolutely. But, 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 like, the same Paul who said, I do not do the good I want, the evil that I do not want to do, that is what I do. Like, the same Paul who said, we got to work on our sinfulness, is the same Paul who's like, I can't stop. In my struggles, the Lord gave me the thorn in the flesh. Three times I begged the Lord, remove this from me. And three times he said, my power is made perfect in weakness. Like, there's an insanity to our sinfulness. And so many of us, right, we find ourselves stuck in a deeply ingrained pattern of sin. We, it's the same sins we bring to the confessional every single time, right? You could just, like, come in with, I got the recorder, Father. Here you go. Let me just hit play. Right? Like, I often think, like, well, thank God it's not new stuff, you know? Like, you didn't murder anybody. That's good. That's good. It's just the same old stuff, right? So here's the thing. It's not about simply behavior modification, white-knuckling it through. It's about radical transformation at the root. John Paul II talked about the power of the cross to bring about redemption, Like, Jesus Christ, the power of the resurrection, really can enter into the depth of our story, the depth of our hearts, and can bring healing there such that we don't just simply have to deal with mitigating our sinfulness, but we actually can become transformed. We can actually become free of certain things. But it requires an openness. It requires letting the Holy Spirit go to our roots So instead of just looking at our sinfulness and being all disgusted by what we continue to do, like, man, I hate that I gossip. I'm so terrible. I hate that I snap with anger. I'm so terrible. I hate that I struggle with lust. I'm so terrible. To pause, to pause and to look with kindness and to look with curiosity at our hearts and ask the question, all right, Jesus, can you show me where this is coming from? Instead of just like wanting to get rid of it right away, Jesus, can you show me where this is coming from? Can you show me the roots of this? Our sinfulness is just so often just the fruit on the tree. It's just symptomatic of much deeper underlying stuff. And we're constantly dealing with the fruits. Got to deal with the roots. Jesus, can you show me where and how this entered my story, my heart, my life? Like, What is the pain? What's the fear? What's the wound? What's the lie? What's the deeper underlying thing that is animating and giving life to these sins? 
Like, there's a reason why you snap with, like, frustration at your husband and your kids, this insanity for control. There's a reason why you're looking at the things online that you're looking at and the particular things. There's a reason why you're drawn there. There's a reason why you lie. There's a reason why you cheat. There's, a re- there's reasons. It's because there's deep underlying stuff. Lord, what's at the root of all this? That's how we deal with our sins. Not by just white-knuckling it through. All right, and the third thing, finally, we need a different vision of the joy that's set before us. Like this whole thing about the hope of heaven. Like, what are we looking forward to? (laughs) That's the question. What are we doing here? What are we looking forward to? Do we have any sense of the joy? I would... I would suggest that we really don't. Or maybe we just get little glimpses of it possibly here and there, but all of our, so much of our art, our music, our poetry, all of it, it it just, it seems to only promise us bright clouds and sexless cherubs, little fat baby angels. As cool as that would be to see. I mean, I want so much more than fat baby angels for all eternity. I'm just saying. Maybe I'm alone in that. I don't know. Okay. It's something, as we heard in that opening prayer, it's something that no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It hasn't even dawned, hasn't even entered into the mind or heart of man what God has prepared. Like, what does Scripture have to say about this? Two things in particular. Two things that were promised by him. First is that we will stand before him. You will stand before him. The one who made the rings of Saturn, the one who banged out the Big Bang, the one who split the Red Sea, the one who died on the cross, you will stand before him. C.S. Lewis said this, that in the end, that face which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised the face which is the delight or the terror of the universe will be turned upon us and can like can any one of us really fathom what that'll be like what what it'll be like to have him look upon you and approve of you like to have him look upon you And to realize somehow my being is ingredient in God's happiness, his delight. Like as he smiles and seeing what I by his grace have become and he looks and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Like, I mean, how many of us would kill for one really heartfelt, genuine compliment from, or like word of praise or affirmation from like a boss or a supervisor like a mentor, a coach. I mean, God forbid, like, my goodness, like a word of praise from our fathers. I've heard so many stories, right? Like, imagine what that, like, you know what that does in your heart. Now we're talking about God. To have the weight of the Father's delight descend upon you, and you hear him say, well done, My son, well done, my daughter. Enter into your master's joy. And the second thing that Scripture promises us, we're told that we're going to be transformed. St. Paul says it as a new creation. 
like just as a, like a rose seed is so infinitely less than a full rose bush in bloom and yet totally organically related to it, so too, like our present state, what we are now presently, we can't even begin to grasp what we are going to be in glory, the transformation unto glory. Because we're going to be taken into the very thing that our hearts have been longing for all our life. Taken into that. We're going to bathe in it. We're going to become part of it. Beauty ineffable. Majesty sublime. We're going to be one with that. What does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) But man, do I want that. Again, C.S. Lewis. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry so false as history may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door, We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the lees of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Friends, we need to hold in our imaginations and our hearts this vision beyond our vision of the glory being held out to us, this supreme moment of satisfaction. The, like, this is why it's all worth it. This is why St. Paul has the audacity to say things like, I consider all the suffering of the present age, like, which includes every paper cut and boo-boo to every Holocaust victim. All the suffering of the present age, he says, as nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. Like, what could the joy, what kind of joy would make crucifixion worth it? And then you add on to that, what kind of joy could make taking on the sin of every person and crucifixion worth it? But that's what, that's what, that's what's being held out to us. Unbelievable. So I'm going to ask us to do three things this week. Three things. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you picture your saints, your patrons. Who are the, who are the super fans in the stands for you this week? What t-shirts do they have on? What foam fingers are they holding up for you? Right. Picture the saints in the stands for you. Hear them cheering and screaming for you. Second thing, I want you to begin asking the Lord those questions about your sinfulness. Lord, show me, show me the roots Where does this come from? What's going on here? And then the third thing is, it's even more practical. Uh, I'm going to challenge this, our entire parish this weekend. I want us to, I want you to read something. I don't usually do this, right? I want you to read C.S. Lewis's sermon, which I've kind of quoted little excerpts from. His sermon called The Weight of Glory. That's W-E-I-G-H-T, weight. The Weight of Glory. For my money, it's quite possibly one of the best things written in, uh, Christendom in the church. It's available online. Just search The Weight of Glory. Read it this week. It'll just fill your heart and your mind imagination with a greater sense of that joy set before us. So that same Jesus, that same Jesus 
is coming in the Eucharist to fill our hearts, to give us a foretaste of the promise yet to come. Let's just open our hearts in a moment of silence. Let's close our eyes and let us prepare for this foretaste, this appetizer of glory that comes to us in the bread of life. Amen.